0: Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So, so guys, thank you so much for all of your support over this weird time. The listenership has gone absolutely mental, and there's exciting news coming up in the next week or so re- regarding the podcast and stuff like that. So, I will I will keep that tight lipped for now. So this week's guest, I'm really excited to have Dr. Sarah Murphy on. So at Dr. Sarah J. Murphy on Instagram. She's a doctor based in Dublin and um, she specializes in obstetrics and gynecology. She's a fitness enthusiast, a uh, marathon runner. Well, not anymore because Dublin marathons cancelled. And our main topics today are going to be on endometriosis and pregnancy during COVID. So Dr. Murphy, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Hi Shane, thanks so much. I'm delighted to to finally come on. It's great to get a chance to do this.
0: How are you holding up in this weird time, potentially, especially because you are a lot more on the front line than most of us?
1: Yeah, I suppose surprisingly well. um, I work in a maternity hospital and I think we've been relatively unaffected by, um, I suppose, the more devastating effects of COVID, so we're quite lucky with regards to that. Um, and then aside from that, I suppose work is a bit of a blessing. I get to leave the house, I get to see people, and kind of go about my normal day somewhat. Um so I suppose the biggest change for me has just been not being able to see friends and family, which is tough, and you get used to it. Um, but I think overall, I've gotten quite used to it all. Um, I'm probably a bit more lucky um, than other people. So,
0: okay, that's good. No, I think it like it is. It is weird. Like I've I've. My brother's in the UK, so I haven't seen my brother since Christmas. I probably won't see him until probably next Christmas. So it is, it is really weird. Uh, so for anyone that isn't aware of your story, how did you get into medicine, and why did you pick those those two main things?
1: Yeah. So in sixth year, I. I wanted to do medicine, um, and I talked to my parents about it a lot. And my mom actually, you know, kind of said to me, you know, it's a, it's a tough lifestyle. You know, the hours are long. It's hard to maintain relationships. Um, and I actually did a year of biomedical sciences in college first, and then realised, you know, this is not what I want. Um, and I transferred into medicine, um, and then realised this is what I want. So I suppose just it was the combination of really enjoying science in school and wanting to with people um that made me think i wanted to do it um and thankfully that that kind of thought process is correct um in terms of specializing in obstetrics and gynecology um i always assume that people know what that is but i don't know if they do so obstetrics is the care of women who are pregnant or trying to get pregnant or after pregnancy um and gynecology is the care of women's reproductive organs but not just in a reproductive capacity so things like heavy periods, painful periods um, the cancers of the genital tract and things like that um it's a really lovely specialty um when we were in college it was a really really well taught specialty so that always made me enjoy it in the first instance but the consultants would advocate for their patients more than I ever saw in other specialties um it's really about empowering women and supporting women um through through all of those things Um, and then other than that it's a really dynamic and versatile specialty so obstetrics is a lot of what we call medicine so you know if a woman has a heart problem you're managing her heart problem with help while she's pregnant and then um gynecology is a lot of surgery so you know if a woman has a cancer of the womb you you remove the womb so you get to do medicine and surgery which is really interesting um and then just like the very like um simple thing of you got to be there when a, a woman you know finds out she's pregnant here's the heartbeat sees her baby for the first time and that's that's lovely you never really get bored of that
0: that's a pretty cool nice way to look at it that isn't that is nice and i think the, the main reason i wanted to talk to uh sarah about these two topics in particular is I'm at the age now where a lot of my mates are having babies. And I think four of my mates have had babies since lockdown, which is what we've been on lockdown nine weeks now. So if this episode helps them at all, I know a few of my mates have got pregnant as well since lockdown. And I think endometriosis was the other topic they I want to talk about it because it is coming a lot more prevalent. I have a few of the girls that I'm working with who have endometriosis. It is not the easiest thing to be living with at particular times. And if this episode helps them or because I think a lot of people are afraid to potentially go to a doctor in general, let it not let alone know what's going on to talk about it because they can almost feel like a little bit embarrassed about it because it is something that quite personal to them. So I think they're the two main topics that I, I want to talk about. So I think the, the first topic that we'll probably talk about is endometriosis. Can you explain one, what it is yeah. to the symptoms, And three, what causes it? I know there's a lot of questions, so take your time.
1: Um, So endometriosis, so the the lining of your womb is called the endometrium. And the idea of what it does is each month it builds up and it sheds, which is your period. Um, If you don't get pregnant and if you do get pregnant, it stays put. So it's this dynamic group of cells in the body. It's supposed to be on the lining of the womb, but if it is outside of the womb, that's what we call endometriosis. And it can be anywhere from on the ovaries, on the fallopian tubes, on the bowel, or just on the lining of the abdomen and pelvis. Um, In terms of the symptoms with it, some people might have mild endometriosis and might never know about it. Um, But the symptoms that people most commonly come to us are things like really heavy, painful periods. Um, So I don't mean, you know, Oh, you have your period, you have a few cramps, you take paracetamol, you're grand. This is debilitating pain sometimes. Um, women will sometimes say, I can't go to work, I can't go to school when I have my period, I'm in so much pain. Um, some women will also say that when they move their bowels, it's incredibly painful. Um, and some women, they don't necessarily forthcoming with this, but when you ask, they'll have um, it's really painful for them to have sex. And so much so that they'll avoid having sex because it's so painful. Other things people might complain of um, are fatigue. So whether we don't know, I suppose, is that um, a result of the endometriosis itself or is it the pain that's that's fatiguing? Because pain is fatiguing. Um, bloating, um, a lot of women will complain of IBS-like symptoms and we do see an overlap. So they'll say, you know, I'm very bloated. I'm getting kind of abdominal cramps. I've A lot of diarrhea, I'm constipated and things like that and then unfortunately some women may have trouble conceiving and that's actually the first thing that happens that triggers um the investigations that they find out that they've been diagnosed with endometriosis and then in terms of what causes it again we're we're not entirely sure so one theory is retrograde menstruation and basically what that means is instead of your volume of your period it's meant to come out <laughs> um, it actually goes backwards um, through the fallopian tubes and into the pelvis and sticks places. Um, and then another theory is that you're just born with ectopic endometrium, which is you're just born with the tissue where it's not meant to be. Um, so we're not entirely sure why, but they're the two theories.
0: And I think there's a lot of, like, is it genetic? Like if your if mom or your say your granny has it, is it genetic?
1: So we, we don't say specifically genetic because I suppose we haven't found when you say genetic, what we mean is that your mum has this gene and you have this gene and we haven't found a gene that links to endometriosis and that we can see past through families, but there is very definitely a link, um, we'd say a familial link, so we do see a woman whose mother or sister has it, has a higher risk of having it, so there probably is, but we just don't know what that is yet.
0: And then in relation to, I know that like there's this different kind of menstrual cycle things that people have like PCOS and all that kind of stuff. Out of say a percentage, out of say ten women, what percentage would have endometriosis?
1: But if you read different studies, you'll see anything from two to ten percent. Um, and I suppose the reason for the large variation is probably because it's a very difficult diagnosis to make. But you could probably say ten percent or one in 10 women may have
0: endometriosis. It's mad because I don't think before I became a nutritionist or a PT, I would never have been watching two or three hour lectures on menstrual cycle dysfunction or menstrual cycle stuff. And I think a lot of people are surprised as a man that it's someone doing that. Um, And like it, it, it is one of those touchy subjects and I think a lot of people are surprised how open some people can be open about it. And I know some other people can be a little bit more um recluse about it how would you kind of cope with someone's a little bit more kind of anxious about it or think they may have symptoms
1: um in terms of their they feel a bit more uncomfortable talking about it yeah i suppose i think patients or people um respond to how you are so if you're really cagey about it and are like um do you have pain during sex then that's how they'll respond. Whereas if you're really open about it and you're like, and do you mind me asking, have you pain during sex? Um, Because I suppose I'm so used to talking about these things. Me asking, have you pain during sex is, I feel as comfortable asking that as, um, you know, do you eat? Um, And I think patients will respond to that. So obviously you give them a little bit of time to warm up and you build rapport and get to know them. But I think then if you talk about it really comfortably and like it's, second nature then they'll respond to that and they're usually like oh okay this is this is normal
0: yeah I think like yeah I, I like that the fact that it's just if you're comfortable with it and you kind of show your confidence in it uh, I think that will put that person at ease you've mentioned kind of the painful cramps and that is one thing like I don't think I've realised how severe the cramping can be is there anything that you would advise um, as a doctor on how to kind of manage those cramps
1: so I suppose like the first you can take pain relief so you can take things like paracetamol and one that's really great for painful periods is women probably know it as ponston um but the best thing then is to treat the cause of the pain um so our first line treatments for endometriosis i suppose would be the insertion of a marina coil or to start on the oral contraceptive pill um and what this does is it suppresses the hormonal drive um and, and stops the tissue outside of the womb getting inflamed and shedding which is what's causing the pain i suppose the issue with this is if those are contraceptions so if a woman wants to get pregnant um she she can't while she's using those treatments so that's tough um women can also get surgery for endometriosis but it's not the first line treatment so it's usually reserved for later on And i suppose the reason for that is surgery has risks and it's it, you know it, you're undertaking a lot when you're going straight to surgery so we do try and use medication
0: first brilliant Um, you mentioned pregnancy there can ladies with endometriosis get pregnant or does it depend as the normal answer that we all give
1: another vague it It does depend though there's four stages of endometriosis so you know somebody with stage one might know they have it might never have any issues and might get pregnant off the bat Um, and then someone with stage four may really struggle so it does depend um It's definitely associated with difficulty with fertility, um, and a lot of women with endometriosis will will require um, some assistance in conceiving, so whether that be a surgery just to remove parts of the endometriosis to to help and aid in getting them pregnant, or sometimes they'll need to try things like um, IVF um, or other assistive reproductive therapies, so it it does depend, It's, it's kind of a spectrum.
0: Okay. And in relation to, you mentioned kind of the the bloating side of things as well. Why is it that some would get more bloating than others? I know every single girl is so different. And yeah. I think this answer is going to be, it depends. But like, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what the title of the episode is going to be, is why do some ladies get different severities of bloating? So
1: it depends. No, um, there's a few things. Um, so we do see a lot of women who have endometriosis also have IBS or irritable bowel syndrome Um, there's a there seems to be a large crossover there so a woman might also have a diagnosis of IBS which is contributing to her um, bloating. The second reason might be that if the endometriosis is on the bowel or very close to the bowel and it gets inflamed it can upset the bowel for want of a better word um, which then can Um, result in either getting bloated or issues moving your bowels there's probably two different reasons why it's occurring
0: i know from practical experience that there are two kind of things as well that there could be kind of some people with endometriosis can have suffer from lactose intolerance and some can suffer from celiac as well there has been a lot of research showing that a celiac diet or a gluten-free diet will be a lot very, very beneficial. And to try it for a period of about three months and to see then slowly reintroduce it back to see if it is of use to you. And then in relation to dairy, I myself have issues with dairy, but if you're not getting enough dairy into your diet or if you have some sort of I don't know if you get a laxative effect from it or whatever it may be, well then it could be very beneficial to take some sort of calcium. But do make sure that you go and talk to a dietitian in order to kind of get the dosages right in for, for those side of things. Um, I think the kind of with with the you've also mentioned kind of. The, the laxative thing and the laxative effects and the IBS and all that kind of stuff. Are there any tools that you can recommend as a doctor or a practitioner that can be brought to someone that can suffer from those, or is that solely something that a dietitian would solely work with? So if I was
1: with ibs what you have to be careful with is we call it a diagnosis of exclusion so there's no test for ibs which is incredibly frustrating so actually what you have to do is rule out everything else first um and you'd be ruling out things like inflammatory bowel disease or celiac um disease and things like that so you do all of that first then i suppose from a practitioner point of view what you do is you try and manage the symptoms so if if a woman is constipated you advise laxatives if a woman is having loose bowel motions you'd bile, advise things to to kind of um bulk up the stool and if a woman's having really bad cramping we'd advise um drugs called their anti-spasmodics um people might know them as like colofac or um Buscapan. then what we do is like ideally we'd um refer to a dietitian um and what they might do is is work the woman through what's called a, a fodmap diet um and that's where you try different foods and you exclude certain foods and then you, you phase them back in to see what it is that triggers your IBS. Um, And in the run-up to all of this, if, if a woman, because obviously in the public system, there's a lot of waiting, um, what women can do and what can be really helpful and will speed up everything is they can do a food diary. So, you know, they can write everything they have to eat in that day um, and also write down their bowel movements and whether or not they're bloating and cramping. Um, and what I would also include in there is how they're feeling. So, um there's probably some link and we're still working on that as well, between the mind got access. So people might find when they're anxious their bowels are all over the place if they're stressed, if they're upset. Um so I would advise if a woman's waiting to see a dietitian for further advice, like she would do that diary. But I'd include everything, I'd include your menstrual cycle, how you're feeling, how your sleep is, um and that would be really helpful and would hopefully speed up her her diagnosis and um the advice she's going to get from the dietitian and doctor
0: it's really interesting that you mentioned the fodmap and then you mentioned the the brain good axis as well i think the brain good axis is one of those things that we probably take for granted and a lot of people don't even realize what it is i hold my hands up before i started doing this as for a living like i the brain good axis like when i was stressed and stuff like that i probably wouldn't have realized and then has a massive impact on you you i for me when i get stressed i don't eat And other people can have such a different impact And I think the the food diary is probably the hidden gem of what we've spoken about so far it's a small little tool and I think that's something I'm working on with the the girls that I have who have it and in particular because there can be a problem with breaking down fiber for a lot of girls with endometriosis and it's important to recognize which fiber or what fiber can you can you have in your body but that's so different from the girls that I have uh, it, it's it, and everyone is so wide ranging, but the best advice is that if you are really really struggling, reach out to a, a, a dietitian uh, yeah. to kind of to work with. Um, in relation to, we'll, we'll kind of move on to the the pregnancy stuff um, because I think there is going to be a bit of a baby boom after after lockdown. I think, um, yeah, it's going to be mental in the hospitals after after this. Um, have you like? what is there any impact or any effect of of the virus that can that can impact on pregnant women are there any symptoms or is there anything that can happen with the virus and stuff like that is it going to impact
1: pregnant women at all so what we're going on is is very little information we're just because this virus is brand new um so what the only thing we can go on is what's happened in other countries to women who are pregnant. So um, probably our best tool so far is a study in the UK that looked um, at a few hundred women and their outcomes. So women who are pregnant who contract viruses usually get sicker than the general public. So a woman who gets flu is a, can be sicker than um, a non-pregnant woman who gets flu. But we haven't seen that with coronavirus, which is really reassuring. The women who've contracted coronavirus or COVID-19 haven't been sicker and we don't we have no evidence that it affects them any worse than a non-pregnant person so that is really reassuring um you know there there were still women who got it and were admitted into icu and who needed to be intubated but no more so than um the non-pregnant people so that is reassuring um there we have no evidence that it increases miscarriage um in the first and second trimester but we don't know that it doesn't unfortunately um the numbers are too small so we do know that when a woman gets a fever um or gets sick in the first and second trimester it can increase miscarriage um but we don't know that coronavirus does it but it might um we did see that some women went into labor earlier um and by earlier you know it might be 35 weeks um but a lot of that was what we call iatrogenic, and that's where doctors bring on the labour, um, for whatever reasons, so either mum was sick or baby wasn't doing well, um. So there does seem to be some preterm deliveries with it. In terms of the babies who have contracted coronavirus, so far they seem to do very well. It seems to be a very short course. Um, a lot of them have seemed to have no symptoms. Um. So babies seem to be relatively unaffected by it as well which is really reassuring so at the moment we don't really know but everything we have i suppose is relatively reassuring um the pregnant women seem to be doing quite well with it
0: i think it is important to note that the information that has been provided in this episode is as of like the 20th of may so things could change yeah. i have to yeah. say that as kind of a I, I, it's I, I've,
1: it's, 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 to, it's like it's potentially evolving every day there could be something tomorrow um that's yeah. completely different so yeah absolutely
0: uh no we'll keep an eye on it we may have to re-record if the uh if the, the information has changed or whatever but i think a lot of a lot of the the girls that i know that are now pregnant i think a lot of them are kind of like are very nervous to go to their appointments their antenatal and then the ones that have had the ba- the baby or kind of the postnatal appointment appo- app- i can't even speak appointments uh what would would you encourage to still go to those, or are there any procedures that are in place for, for those that are going to them?
1: So I absolutely think they should attend. Um, we know antenatal care improves outcomes for mums and babies, so it's really important to attend your antenatal care. Um. I can only speak i suppose for my hospital but i think we've done it really well um we have cut down the sizes of the antenatal appointments and we've given people specific times so in the waiting room at any one time there's only 10 women um and, and which is enough for them to all have two meters um apart from each other um we're spending if possible so obviously if someone needs longer we spend longer but if something is really routine we try to limit the antenatal consultation to less than 15 minutes um and the doctors are wearing um visors or face masks um so we're we are trying our best to keep everything um you know as as safe as possible Um, and we've gotten a lot of really good responses from women that said that they were nervous to come and then they saw how we had it set up and they were quite reassured you know even our waiting our queue for booking in for the appointment the chairs are two meters apart um so we really are trying our best what we've also done is we if there's a woman will say for example that everything's going really well with and she has no concerns um we are due to see her in two weeks we might ring her at that two weeks instead of her coming in to us um and obviously if there's issues she can come in but if everything is well over the phone and um, we might say we'll see you in two weeks again so we'll space it out by four weeks um so that's something that we're really trying to do as well
0: and do you think that system potentially will stay in place for a long time or do you think it could step stay in place for the longer term if you know what I mean because I think a lot of things are going to change
1: possibly and that's and that's what a lot of people are sort of saying that some of the phone appointments are working really well for for women who are really well and it's just sort of a check-in that's working really well so I wouldn't be surprised if some of that stays or becomes an option um and especially if a woman lives you know 40 plus minutes away um and has kids at home that might actually be a really good option for her um but what we just need to be careful is that we're not offering that to anyone who specifically needs to be
0: seen 100 percent. and then i think the next question that kind of from one of the girls in particular that popped me a question that is that i'm friends is she like any advice on the breastfeeding um because i think some people can some people may think that it may be something that needs to be monitored or they may not feel comfortable doing it now that with COVID kind of going around and stuff like that have you got any advice on that side of things
1: so I suppose as of the 20th of May um, we have no proof that there is the coronavirus is transmitted in breast milk and um, so the breast milk itself is safe your biggest risk with breastfeeding I suppose is that if a mum has coronavirus and she's breastfeeding her infant you're very close together um, and that you would risk transmitting it but you'd hope that regardless if you're breastfeeding or not, you're going to be close with your infant. Um, and I suppose the WHO released this lovely guidance document, both for healthcare professionals and patients. And what they're saying is the benefits of breast milk um, and the benefits of the act of breastfeeding itself outweigh any potential risks of transmitting the virus. So the WHO are still very much recommending breastfeeding. And I think that's uh, something, you know, that's that's a massive thing to, for them to say. Um, what they advise is that if a mum thinks she has coronavirus or does have coronavirus, like she would wear a mask while she's feeding her infant. Um if she's going to cough or sneeze, practice um proper etiquette and to wash her hands before and after. So just kinda the really strict hygiene rules, but they would still recommend that you breastfeed um that the benefits of it outweigh any risks.
0: Awesome. And then in relation to kind of giving birth during kind of COVID as well. Um, I even know of someone who had a home birth during COVID, uh, which home births are, are stressful enough. I can only imagine uh, without kind of COVID being around. Have you got any advice on kind of giving birth during COVID and how to put anyone at ease in that regards as well?
1: Yeah, so I suppose the actual giving birth has been sort of unaffected. So if a woman comes in in labor, her partner can come in with her um, and he or she will be with her on the labor ward the whole time. Um, They're there for, you know, the whole labor process, the birth um, and for a little bit afterwards. And that's really nice. Um, The things that have changed a bit is that if a woman comes in with pains but is not in labor and is staying in, her partner can't stay with her then. Um, And after the birth, while the woman's on the postnatal ward, her partner can't be with her then either. So those are the tough bits and those are the bits that are different. I think women have been relatively um, brilliant with regards to that. They've accepted that th- this is what has to be done. Um, and I know just from reading and talking to them that they found that the midwifery support on the wards has been amazing. Um, so, But that is tough. It's, it's And especially, I think, for first-time mums to be on a postnatal ward with a new infant by yourself is tough. Um, but hopefully, if everything goes well, they get to go home quite quickly afterwards. Um, and as well, with cesarean sections, partners can come in for those, um, which is really nice. So, that's, that's been unaffected as well. So, relatively unaffected, but some small changes that are tough for women.
0: Yeah, I think that like there, there definitely is so much useful information in regard to that. So, if you've listened to this and you've, you've kind of like, if you have if you found it useful i think it's definitely benefit hopefully it puts someone's mind at ease and i think with kind of like this is where my pt head kind of comes in and having done the ntc course and pre and postnatal like if you are looking to train it all depends on what your your doctor has said if you're looking to train after you have to get sign off from your doctor before you kind of do stuff if you are pregnant my advice would be don't put anything over your head because it can take the blood flow away from the baby and stuff like that no high intensity stuff just try to kind of keep it simple don't do anything don't forgo for any pbs I know we're out of the gym and stuff like that but we don't know what people have at home Um, and just be very very careful and make sure we're kind of post pregnancy and post baby and stuff like that is to make sure that you're doing those exercises, those pe- those those pelvic floor exercises that like they are, that everyone hates doing them. I've had postnatal clients. It's, it's like it, you can see it in their eyes. They don't enjoy doing them. You can make a little bit of fun once you kind of get used to it and make sure when you're strengthening up stuff, you could even use your baby as a glute bridge, as a, as a hip thrust. I've had clients do that and the baby gets a great giggle out of it. Yeah. Uh, so you have to get inventive in these, these weird times um and in relation to i think i'll go back to one more question with the endometriosis um is there more chance of a miscarriage with endometriosis compared to any other thing or is it is it like i know with the initial pregnancy is a thing as well but is there more chance of it with endometriosis
1: there's not an increased risk of miscarriage and um, more so than without it your risk i suppose is just getting pregnant with the in the first instance, that's where women will struggle. But once pregnant, um, there's no evidence that of of an increased miscarriage with it, um, which is
0: reassuring. I think that I think that's really really important. I think if if you are if you are trying to get pregnant, or I definitely link you with a dietitian. There's so many amazing dietitians out there uh, that specialise in this. Aura uh, Walsh is phenomenal at this kind of stuff. She knows the stuff like the back of her hand. So definitely give 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 her a shout. Um. So, Sarah, what's coming up next for you? I know Dublin Marathon was yeah. around, was meant to happen. Uh, but what's coming up next for you? Because, like, if you do, if you don't follow uh Sarah on Instagram, please do. Like, she's a fitness enthusiast. Um, and it's it's incredible how like promotes balance because I think a lot of people don't promote balance and I think Sarah is promoting obviously doing her amazing work that she does for her day job but also promoting fitness and nutri- and that kind of stuff on a daily basis so what's coming up next for you regarding that side of things how are you going to change up your training?
1: Yeah so I was hoping it would have been my second marathon so I was hoping to do the double marathon in October I was really excited but um, it was cancelled as of yesterday um, which is to be expected. Um, I don't know I, a lot of people have suggested if I train the marathon and did it on the day anyway but I don't think I have it in anyway. me so I'm just going to keep going I eye running for the moment um I think my next challenge that I wanted to do was either do a duathlon or a triathlon and um, so I'm starting to add in a bit more cycling with the aim of doing that someday so if there's any duathlons that are on at the end of the year maybe I'll book one of those and train for that um and then a triathlon after that so they're kind of my next few things to tick off we'll see how that goes and I'm swimming will be the best well
0: how are you managing the training when you have kind of like the hours and stuff like that? So I know you may have your set hours and know it works d- d- at different stages for doctors and stuff like that, but how do you manage your training and how do you plan in your training?
1: I suppose I have no social life at the moment. That makes things easy. Um, I sit down every Sunday and I write out, you know, the hours I'm working and the I kind of other work stuff that I have to do and then slot training in around that. So it's a lot of planning, um, but you, you, I think everybody, you know, if if you look, you can find the time. Um, and I suppose there's things like I have no children, so you know I don't have that side of things keeping me busy. And with COVID, I can't see my friends, family, or go out for dinner or drink. So that has freed up a lot of time. So it's actually probably easier at the moment. Um, but I think it's a lot of planning. You sit down, you fit in the things you know that are non-negotiable, like work. You have to go to work. Um, and then you slot training either in before or after that um, somewhere.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest problem a lot of people are having is if they have kids and a lot of my clients have kids at home. They're trying to do their main job and they're having to do split shifts and then they're going to have to kind of, when the kids go to bed, they're going to have to log on. I think the most important thing or what you can do, it's easier said than done, it's very easy for me to say that doesn't have kids but I think you do need to just plan as much as you can or else just if, if you're not up to it just prioritize your sleep as well because yeah. i think you're you'll either get ratty and you'll get ratty with your partner you'll get ratty with your kids and that's not going to help the situation uh, at all um how do you kind of get into kind of like the fitness stuff because everyone's journey is so different
1: um so yeah my, i never found my story of how i got into everything particularly profound or exciting um in school I wasn't that sporty, I didn't play any sports, I didn't really exercise that much other than um, PE and then I started in UCD and I actually lived with a lot of the elite athletes who were on scholarships um, and I'd see them get up at 6 and go to the gym and they'd come home after dinner and they'd you know go for a run and I just thought that these guys were really impressive um, and I suppose that inspired me somewhat to start going to the gym um, and then after that I really enjoyed it and I just kind of took off from there and um, there was one summer where a lot of my friends were away on a holiday and I unfortunately couldn't afford to go with them so I was just at home and that's the year that it really took off um I didn't really have a lot else to do other than to to exercise and that sparked my love for it and it kind of took off from there so it's not as I think profound um as some people's stories but that's my story so
0: and what made you kind of create the, the Instagram that you have? You've got what, thirty odd thousand followers, I think it is at this stage?
1: Yeah, so it happened that year. So my friends were away. I was at home with my parents. Um it was summer. I had a lot of free time with a gym up the road and I just started documenting what I was doing. Um, more as a hobby more than anything, um, to do and I really enjoyed it and it got it I suppose I got some interest with it, and it just took off from there. Um, and I've been intermittently doing it since then. So there was twice I kind of took a break from it. Um, but I that, it's kind of been going on for a few years now.
0: And how do you find documenting it? Because it like Instagram can so easily take over your life. Like it's yeah. so easy. How do you How do you find the balance?
1: So yeah, there was twice I took a break, and I think I took a break for a few months. And what ended up happening was. I was doing things because I thought I should do them or I was doing things because I needed to do a post um, or it's sometimes you can get very kind of locked up in, oh, how many likes does that get and things. And that was when I was like, I need to take a break. This is pointless and this is silly. Um, And now I suppose that I'm doing it again, I'm doing it because I want to do it. um, And what I'm trying to do is post things. That i think will be helpful to people and not just things that i think will be popular or get likes um and i think that's a really important thing to do to do it because you enjoy it and because you think you're helping people and not to get any traction um and things like that and if if you find that you're getting too caught up in likes and follows then to take a step back um and kind of reevaluate why you're doing what you're doing
0: and like a bar kind of stepping away from instagram completely why well, did you kind of step away from the whole likes thing because it it, it can i know when i first started doing it and i definitely don't know at the, the amount of followers sarah has but it can be like why is one post you it baffles you at the beginning like why is one post getting more than the other and then yeah. you, you look at you can also kind of end up looking at other people's content and then you find that if that person's putting up like a glue picture or an app picture and then they've literally written nothing insightful underneath it they're getting a lot more interaction even though you've taken whatever amount of time to write this yep. eloquent sentence or eloquent paragraph or whatever maybe how did you kind of move away from that
1: I think you really have to evaluate why you're doing what you're doing so are you, do you is it why are you posting? Do you want to help people? Do you want to inspire people? And if those are your whys, then I suppose it doesn't matter if, you know, one thousand people like your photo but only two people get help from it, versus if you've written this gorgeous caption with help and it only gets a hundred likes, but twenty people have taken something from that, then that's that has more worth in it. Um and I think that's more important that you know, if you remember that, I think sometimes people can like things and take nothing from it, and then you have to think, well, what's the point of this? Um, But if if only twenty women, but that's still twenty women, get something from something you've posted, then that's worth a lot more.
0: Yeah, I I, I really like that sentiment. I think that if it, if even if it helps one person, and that's why I started doing the podcast. When I first started doing the podcast, I had no idea it was going to go to where it is now and there's definitely more room there's more wiggle room to for where to go but if it if it impacts on one person i love getting the messages from people i've never spoken to probably will never meet uh in different parts of the world i'd still find it so weird and my my parents my mates find it so weird that people tune in to little old bald old me to kind of have chatting on a microphone um but i'm so grateful for for your time and so grateful for you coming on and giving up your post exam. Congratulations on the exams as well, by the way. Um for coming on today and having a chat. Um you've been awesome. So where can people find out about you and where can people continue to follow you,
1: Sarah? The best place probably Instagram. So I think you said it'll start with Doctor Sarah J Murphy. Um so that's that's where I'm probably most prominent and that's probably the best place to find me.
0: Perfect. So what I'll do, guys, is I will put in Sarah's Instagram handle into the write-up. So if you guys have found the the episode interesting, please do tag the two of us in up on your story. Uh, the episode will be up on iTunes and up on Spotify. Guys, guys, thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for coming on today, Sarah. Thanks so much,
1: Ian. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, William.